Hello, and welcome to Deep North. I'm Eric Pomeranke, and we're here today with staff writer Yelena Chirich on her piece, A New Leash on Life, the remarkable survival story of the Icelandic sheepdog. I'm on my way to meet a national pageant winner who, after a thorough examination by a qualified judge, was selected as the most beautiful in all the land. The pageant winner is perhaps not quite what you would expect, however. Firstly, he's male. Secondly, he's three years old. Thirdly, he's covered in a thick coat of luxurious fur. His name is Einid, and he's an Icelandic sheepdog. My first glimpse of Einid does not disappoint. As I pull into the town of Thorlokshöpn, I spot him getting brushed by his owner, Linda Björk Jonsdóttir his glorious auburn and white mane gleaming in the sunlight. I'm not the least bit surprised that this magnificent pup was awarded best in show at the Icelandic Kennel Club's 50th anniversary show last August. While Einir's forefathers have accompanied Icelandic shepherds since the time of the settlement, they haven't always been recognized for their contributions. While the Icelandic sheep is often cited as the foundation of the Icelanders' survival on this barren island, and the country's horses have admirers around the world, the Icelandic sheepdog hardly enjoys the same attention or acknowledgement. The Icelanders' attitude towards the unique breed has at times shifted from indifference to apathy and even contempt. In fact, it was only thanks to a lot of luck and to a little help from two dog lovers, one of them foreign, that the Icelandic sheepdog managed to avoid total extinction. Just like sheep and horses, Icelandic sheepdogs were brought to the island by Norwegian settlers at the time of the settlement. Genetically speaking, they are closely related to the Norwegian buhund. Both dogs belong to the Spitz family, a group encompassing some 50 varieties of dogs across the northern hemisphere, well suited to cold, harsh climates. Einid displays the typical characteristics of Icelandic sheepdogs and Spitzes in general. Pointed ears, tails that curl over the back, and long, luscious fur. While the Icelandic sheepdog is mentioned in the Icelanders' sagas, foreign breeds brought by noblemen are much more prominent in the manuscripts, as their rarity made them status symbols. Icelandic sheepdogs, on the other hand, were likely so common that they mostly went unnoticed by locals. The dogs were, however, noticed abroad, and are mentioned in early European writings. In De Cannibus Britannicus, published in 1570, John Caius wrote that, quote, Iceland dogs were greatly esteemed in England due to their strange appearance being curled and rough all over, which by reason of the length of their hair makes show neither face nor body. Even Shakespeare mentions the breed in his play Henry V, written around 1600, though perhaps not so favorably. The character Pistol, in a fight, cries out the insult, Pish for thee, Iceland dog, thou prick-eared cur of Iceland. As Shakespeare regularly referred to dogs in his insults, Icelandic sheepdog lovers should perhaps not take that line too personally. Despite Shakespeare's attitude towards them, Icelandic sheepdogs only grew in popularity in England in the following decades. In 1650, Sir Thomas Brown wrote of the breed, To England there are sometimes exported from Iceland not only small poodles, but also another type of dog resembling the fox. Shepherds in England are eager to acquire them. Watching Einid run around happily, 
It's hard to believe that only 50 years ago, his entire breed was on the verge of extinction. While the Icelandic sheepdog survived, other breeds brought to Iceland during its settlement weren't so lucky. In their 1744 publication, Travels in Iceland, Akert Olafsson and Bjarni Paulsson write of four distinct breeds of dogs. The first is the sheepdog, described as being of great help to the shepherds. Of the other breeds, the writers mention. Sheepdogs that have thick and coarse hair, the so-called luhbar. These dogs are supposed to be particularly clever and can learn many tricks. Two other breeds are mentioned, deerhunter, hunting dogs, and dverghunter, dwarf dogs. In less than 200 years, all but the Icelandic sheepdog would disappear. Today, the sheepdog is hardly a common sight, but in the 18th and early 19th centuries, several foreigners visiting Iceland observed that most households had at least one or two of them. William Jackson Hooker toured Iceland in the summer of 1809. In his journal, he described the dog's value as both friend and helper. Among the domestic animals in the island, the dog deserves the first place, not only as the companion and solace of the natives, as well as the guard of their houses, but as being of essential service in their agricultural pursuits, by keeping the horses from eating the grass intended for hay, and by collecting the sheep scattered over the mountains and driving them to the milking places. Today, some Icelandic sheepdogs are still working dogs, but many are simply family pets, like any other breed. Linda got her first Icelandic sheepdog at the age of 14, while she was living on a third-floor apartment in Reykjavik. Not everybody she met approved of the arrangement. There are old prejudices against the breed, she told me, People believe they bark a lot and aren't suited to being house pets. Of course, they've been bred to bark at sheep and warn when someone's coming, so they do make themselves heard. But it's very possible to tame them. They're not barking all day. Barking must have been a common sound in early 19th century Iceland. The ratio of dogs to humans likely far exceeded that of any other country at the time. As a Danish doctor observed... There were usually two to five dogs on each farm, and sometimes more. Thus, there was a minister who told me that at his farm there were at least twelve dogs that had come with people attending church, and which had stayed behind. According to Icelanders, it is not unusual for the service to be disturbed by dogs running about and fighting in the cemetery. In the middle of that century, however, one event would occur that would decimate the dog population. In 1855 and 1856, an infection caused by a parasitic tapeworm spread among the canines, decimating the population so that many communities were left entirely destitute. It wasn't until a couple of decades later that doctors understood the parasite was also causing liver disease in humans. One Danish doctor claimed that the liver disease was so widespread that almost one in 40 Icelanders suffered from it. Once an indispensable helper the sheepdog had now also become a dangerous bedfellow. In 1871, in an effort to reduce the number of dogs and therefore the risk of human infection, the Icelandic government imposed an annual head tax for all dogs exceeding a certain number on each farm. This seems to have increased the sheepdog's value, as in 1875, 
Richard F. Burton wrote, "Good specimens easily fetch six dollars. A horse may be exchanged for the most valuable, those which they say can search a sheep under nine ells of snow." Though a clever sheepdog could still fetch a high price, there's no doubt that the tapeworm epidemic led to a shift in attitudes towards the animal, an attitude that lingered on long past the advancement of medicine, which eventually eradicated the tapeworms and their associated dangers. Health considerations were behind a law that banned dogs in Reykjavik and other urban areas from 1924 to 1984. Other restrictive regulations were in place until very recently. Dogs were banned in Reykjavik restaurants until 2017, and on public buses until 2018. While these laws applied to all dogs, Iceland's oldest breed seems to have shouldered some of the most prejudice. Though tapeworms didn't prove successful in eradicating the unique Icelandic breed, another epidemic would come close: neglect. Though for hundreds of years. There was no shortage of Icelandic sheepdogs. There was also no particular understanding of the value of preserving the breed's purity. In fact, in the late 19th century, many Icelandic sheepdogs were crossbred with border collies in an attempt to improve the breed. Descendants of these mixes are quite common today, seen on farms across the country. By the early 1900s, the purebred Icelandic sheepdog was becoming rare. The Dane. Eugen Kolding wrote, "In all the well-known fjords and in Reykjavik itself, the breed is only found mixed with the numerous French and English curs that abound there. After a two-year stay in this our dependency, I hardly know of twenty pure types of Icelandic dogs besides my own." In the end, Iceland's geography prevented crossbreeding from reaching all the country's sheepdogs. One other factor was crucial to their survival as well. In 1909, it became illegal to import dogs to Iceland. Still, since no one took special interest in preserving the breed, it continued its decline. It would take an outside eye, almost three decades later, to see the sheepdog's value and start the process that would truly save it from the brink of extinction. In the summer of 1937, an English nobleman. Only thirty-one years old visited Iceland for the first time. He was so enamored that he returned the following year to travel around the country on horseback. His name was Mark Watson, and in the following decades, he would contribute to the country's art collection, the preservation of its turf houses, and even establish its first veterinary hospital. Watson became interested in the breed of dog he saw in Iceland during his travels, which he recognized as unique. He noted how rare the dogs were, and in the 1950s he decided to find pure-bred specimens and attempt to breed them. Watson traveled to the most remote farms he could find in search of the perfect dogs. Dog trainer Thorhildur Bjartmars imagined how strange such visits would have appeared in the eyes of the locals. It may be assumed that many Icelandic farmers were flabbergasted to see this British gentleman stand in his finest clothes on the porch. Asking very politely for permission to examine the dogs on the farm, Watson became interested in the breed of dog he saw in Iceland during his travels, which he recognized as unique. He noted how rare the dogs were, and in the 1950s he decided to find pure-bred specimens and attempt to breed them. 
Watson traveled to the most remote farms he could find in search of the perfect dogs. Dog trainer Thorhildur Bjarmars imagined how strange such visits would have appeared in the eyes of the locals. It may be assumed that many Icelandic farmers were flabbergasted to see this British gentleman stand in his finest clothes on the porch, asking very politely for permission to examine the dogs on the farm. Mark found eight sheepdogs in East and North Iceland, and later two more from the West Fjords, which satisfied his criteria. He transported them to California, where he started a breeding program. Icelandic journalists found Mark's activities curious. A 1958 Visit headline about the kennel called it the latest colony of Icelanders in the U.S. Mark's breeding attempts in the United States had mixed results, and he eventually moved home to England, bringing his remaining dogs with him. It may seem hard to fathom that Icelanders would be so uninterested in preserving such a unique and helpful species, but it likely had a lot to do with attitudes towards dogs in general. In addition to being seen as carriers of disease, dogs were simply viewed as farm help. During the rapid urbanization of the 20th century, living with dogs in the city was likely considered just as preposterous as sharing your apartment with sheep. About a decade after he began his quest to breed Icelandic sheepdogs, Mark Watson met an Icelandic woman who had become interested in the same thing. When Watson and Sigríður Pétursdóttir were introduced, he encouraged her to visit England, which she did three times between 1965 and 1967. There, Watson introduced her to breeders and subjected her to an extensive education on breeding through the English Kennel Club. She eventually returned to Iceland with two of Mark's puppies. They were granted an exception from the import ban. Sigríður was instrumental in founding Iceland's Kennel Club, established in 1969, which for the last 50 years has spearheaded the preservation of the Icelandic sheepdog in its home country and abroad. The club has also helped shift attitudes towards canines by instituting education and training programs in the country. In 2016, the Icelandic Sheepdog Association established Icelandic Sheepdog Day. It chose July 18th for the annual celebration, Mark Watson's birthday, to honor his contribution to the breed. While the dog may not be a big part of the national consciousness, it has at least finally earned a dedicated group of supporters. I've been part of this group since I was a kid, and it's like a family, Linda tells me. Sometimes we call it the dog mafia, she laughs. But what about Ainit, the country's most beautiful sheepdog? While he's currently sought after by many breeders, Linda considers all of that business secondary. At the end of the day, she tells me, he's just my dog. Well, thank you for that, Yelena. You're very welcome. So something that you brush on in the piece is uh, just kind of changing attitudes maybe towards animals throughout time in Iceland. Um, where would you kind of say that animals stand today? Well, I think um, sort of Icelanders' attitude toward animals is kind of built on this uh, agricultural society that, that it very much was for many hundreds of years. And so the tendency is sort of to think of animals as being associated with farms 
you know, farm animals. But of course, in the last hundred years, we've had more and more animals that are just pets. They don't have a role on a farm necessarily. They're just somebody's, you know, pet, personal companion or family member. Um, so I think that has definitely changed. Uh, but if you look at kind of the legal framework around pets, it may not be as far advanced, perhaps, if that's the right way of wording it, uh, as other Western countries, just because of this sort of holdover of, you know, animals belong on the farm. Uh, so there are still a lot of restrictions in place in urban areas on animals. Like, for example, if you want to get a pet, but you live in an apartment building, you have to get a majority of your neighbors to agree to you having that pet mm. in the apartment building, something that is unthinkable uh, in other countries, although in other countries, buildings or building owners may decide to just ban pets altogether as well. Yeah, and for instance, uh, there are no shelters or pounds. There are some uh, kind of private charitable organizations, as far as I understand. Uh, but, I mean, to this day, there's really kind of no solution for loose wild animals. Yeah, I think um, just infrastructure in general, maybe, or, or just good veterinary care and, and so on. It, it, I mean, you don't really see kind of stray animals running around in Iceland. It's not really a thing that, that happens so much. But yeah, there is no public shelter or, or pound or anything like that. There's just a, a couple privately run organizations and um, they often kind of come up in the news as, as lacking funding or not really having the funding required to care for the animals that, that end up without a home that yeah. they're trying to find a new home for. Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit of a paradox maybe i mean uh on the one hand i mean i think that a lot of icelanders grow up around animals um you know there's still a you know very much alive rural community in iceland um and yet at the same time yeah i mean maybe this mentality of kind of dogs belong on the farm has kind of also um placed them like in a different category yeah, I think that could be true. And we hear a lot of people say about Icelandic sheepdogs in particular, um, you'll hear you're, you'll hear people say sort of, oh, they bark a lot. They're so loud. You can't get them to stop barking. So they're really not, you know, dogs that you should keep in the city or in an apartment or that sort of thing. And I mean, that's not necessarily true if the dogs are trained. Yeah. Um, there is also uh, this recent uh, regulation in Akureyri about Outdoor cats. What can you tell me about that? That's right. The city council or the local council in Akureyri in North Iceland decided to ban outdoor cats after midnight, I believe. And eventually this uh, this ban was repealed. Uh, but it was very controversial. I mean, I think there's, there's sort of this conflict between uh, people who believe the bird life should be protected. You know, cats, outdoor cats, they do kill a significant number of birds. They hunt birds. Um, so, you know, you've got animal lovers who love birds on one side arguing, yeah, well, these yeah. cats shouldn't be wandering around at night. And then you've got cat lovers saying, well, first of all, I, I, how can I even enforce a you know, curfew with my cat? It's not like something I can communicate to the cat. Uh, but there, there are actually other municipalities that still have this regulation in North Iceland. And so, it, it, I mean, I think it's interesting that when the regulation was put in place, there was a lot of backlash from the community, both in Akureyri and elsewhere in the country. And the whole issue even ended up in the year-end uh, sort of comedy review uh, where this couple was trying to explain to their dog it had to come home before midnight, or sorry, their cat. Um, so 
you know, I think we do see attitudes kind of changing, especially with younger generations and people who have had pets. But there is definitely a lot of kind of there are a lot of regulations still that ban pets from certain workplaces, from certain restaurants and so on. It's it's kind of I think if you're a dog owner, you are quite limited in terms of where you can take your dog. Yeah, it's actually quite uh, striking to me that it was only, what, 2018 when dogs were allowed, was it on city buses? Uh, I believe, yeah, that would be 2018 then. Yeah. yeah. And even even so, even though they're allowed on buses now, they're only allowed at certain times of day, not during rush hour. Mm. They have to go in through the back door. Uh, there, with a lot of these regulations, there seems to be a lot of concern about people who might have allergies to pets and making sure that uh, people who maybe have dog or cat allergies, that they're not necessarily just suddenly encountering dogs on the bus, just on their daily commute or whatever. Yeah. So you've kind of sketched out this, uh, you know, comeback story maybe uh, of the Icelandic dog. Um, it's, you know, maybe being in threat of extinction, um, and it's revival through breeding programs and changing attitudes. Um, today there's about 5,000, uh, Icelandic sheepdogs throughout the world, uh, according to the Icelandic Sheepdog Association. Um, and, you know, something that's really interesting is just how similar in a way the dog still is to some of its ancestors, um, I mean, just like so many of these kind of heritage breeds in Iceland, like the Icelandic horse, um, you can actually kind of look back at, you know, old Viking Age graves at the dogs that were present in those graves, and their skeletons are actually remarkably similar. I mean, really, basically just the same breed. Um, but I think it's also kind of interesting how the dog was also uh, picked up and kind of popularized also throughout the UK. Uh, it's also my understanding that uh, the Icelandic sheepdog was also crossbred with a lot of popular uh, sheepdog breeds in the UK. So uh, the Icelandic sheepdog is actually still pretty closely related to a lot of well-known uh, breeds like the corgi, actually. Um, yeah, I mean, is, there is a little bit of a resemblance if you look at some pictures. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, one of the things I found really interesting when I was researching this article was how Icelandic sheepdogs were popular in the UK several hundred years ago, like in the 17th century. Uh, and it's just so interesting because we don't tend to think about Iceland in that period as, as, as exporting, you know, animals or exporting much of anything really. Although um, famously there was a large uh, falcon export. That's true as well. Yeah, there was, yeah, falcons were very sought after and falcon eggs and so on. Um, but I th that I found very interesting just to think about kind of the economy of exporting Icelandic sheepdogs. And um, interestingly, I also learned that in the late 19th century, the Danish War Ministry acquired a few Icelandic sheepdogs and they wanted to train them, I guess, to be some sort of spy dogs or <laughs> maybe not spy dogs, but used in some sort of uh, military capacity. And it ended up being a very short-lived project, but there was one source I found uh, that wrote, this was surely not the fault of the dogs. So <laughs> somebody who was very sympathetic to the sheepdog said that. I'm sure they were definitely smart enough, but uh, it just didn't work out. They couldn't become military dogs, but uh, maybe that's for the best. I can imagine uh, an Icelandic sheepdog running around a Napoleonic battlefield with a little backpack with like, <laughs> water and uh, maybe snacks. Medicine. Or, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So... 
getting to spend some time around both Icelandic sheepdogs and Icelandic sheepdog breeders, did you kind of uh, see any changing opinions in yourself as you were kind of writing this piece? Yeah, I mean, I'm an animal lover. I, I love dogs. I don't own one, but hope to one day. But uh, I didn't really know much about dog breeding. And it, it just the sort of image you get of it from the outside, sometimes it can seem kind of snobby, like, oh, why would people, you know, want to sort of make sure animals are purebred? It sort of, there's a kind of like snobby element to it, I guess, where you think like, do you think your purebred dogs are better than other dogs? Yeah. But in the context of the Icelandic sheepdog, I, I really came to understand how there is a really great value in preserving a breed that's developed over several hundred years to be kind of perfectly adapted to its environment. And it would be a loss to the world if we lost that breed and, and those genetics. So I think it's really remarkable how just a couple of individuals uh, putting in a huge effort managed to save an entire species. And I mean, there's a similar story with just one individual with the Icelandic goat as well. And so I think that's just one of the remarkable things also about Icelandic history, how sometimes one person can have such a huge impact, like on an entire species, like in this case. Yeah, and there are, I'm sure, plenty of practical reasons why it's good to preserve this species. Um, but, you know, I mean, just like the discourse around endangered languages, I mean, there's also something to be said for just the value of diversity as such. It's good to just preserve as much, you know, biodiversity as possible. And um, there's maybe something to be said for, you know, just, just like the Icelandic language, uh, the Icelandic sheepdog uh, kind of has its place in the future. Yeah, I, I sure hope so. I mean, they're really, really fluffy. So, <laughs> well, so what, what specifically maybe is one of the adaptations that makes the Icelandic sheepdog so well-suited to its environment, actually? Well, it is like a lot of other spitzes. It's got this really long, thick fur, and the fur is actually quite water-resistant. So, you know, when they're in the snow or in the rain or whatever, they can just kind of shake it off, and, and you know, they'll, they'll just sort of shake off all the dirt and, and all of the all of the water and everything, and, and they can really handle these cold temperatures and just these kind of more extreme conditions that we see in Iceland. I think that one of uh, the kind of best um, maybe figures for embodying a historical attitude towards these animals, um, you know, I mean, just, of course, this book is just a great source for so many things, but uh, in, in Independent People by Laxness, uh, Bárður of Summer Houses, um, you know, he is in a lot of ways, a bitter old man, and he's not a particularly good father or husband, uh, but he's a very good dog owner. And his dog is one of the few things that kind of brings him joy in life. Uh, it's one of the few things that he really just selflessly takes care of. Um, and I think that's just a really kind of great image for the place of the sheepdog in Icelanders' hearts uh, is uh, just this, this old grumpy farmer who kind of... Uh, resents everything except his dog. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, anybody who, who is kind of familiar with dogs and dog ownership, they know that dogs can kind of bring that out in humans, maybe more than other species can. So I think it's really special that Icelanders can have their own breed of dog to have this really special relationship with. 
Well, thank you for talking today, Elena. My pleasure. Deep North is the official podcast of Iceland Review, the oldest continuously running English language publication on Iceland, covering community, nature, and culture. If you enjoyed listening, please consider subscribing to Iceland Review at our website.